You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. Joining me today is Frank Ricci, a returning guest to Labor Relations Radio. Frank, how are you today? Thanks for having me on. It's an honor to be on your show, Peter. So you are with the Yankee Institute, and I see you writing here and there. But for the listeners who did not catch the first episode where you and Keith were on, can you kind of give a little bit of background so people know where you're coming from? I'm a fellow of labor at Yankee Institute. I retired as a union president for New Haven Firefighters. I was in the union chairs for 16 years, never losing an election. And I was also the lead plaintiff in a landmark United States Supreme Court case, Ritchie versus DeStefano, that was based off merit-based promotions. And I'm currently the author of the book, Command Presence. Awesome. So the reason I thought it would be kind of fun to have this episode out there is you wrote something recently about the teachers unions and what they're doing in their contract negotiations. You good to go into that? It was mind blowing. Um, You're speaking of a recent piece in the daily caller and it's something that receives such little attention, but you know, I wrote it as an op-ed, but it's almost like a news piece because nobody's really covered it from this angle And essentially what it is, is we all know that a labor contract, wages, hours, working conditions, and benefits. That's what a labor contract is. That's what a collective bargaining agreement is. But what we saw happen in Boston and Los Angeles, and as we know, Connecticut and California, it's like a bad vice of bad, poor public policy that just squeezes out the rest of the country. So they tried out every bad idea in California and, you know, on the Connecticut, Massachusetts, the East Coast. So they were actually installed in the fine print of like a 400-page contract that housing justice. So regardless of the merits of affordable housing, they embedded it into a teacher's contract. And, Peter, the reason that this is important is you have to realize while the legislative process allows a contract to be voted up or down, a tentative agreement to be voted up or down to become a collective bargaining agreement, there's it doesn't follow the normal legislative process. So there's no draft legislation to look at. There's no committees. There's no amendments. There's no cogent floor debate. It's an up or down vote, kind of like what you would see in an omnibus package where this is the contract, the politician, the elected official is voting this contract up or down. And we know what happens with teachers' contracts, Peter. They vote it down. They may be voting down it because, wait a second, you're installing Marxist ideology into a teacher's contract, subverting democracy in the normal legislative process that makes our republic so critical. You're supporting that in. You're only giving an up and down vote. And then as soon as the individual votes down, we know, oh, you're anti-teacher. How could you not support the teachers when housing has nothing to do with a labor agreement for teachers? So let me let me 
stop you and back up a little bit. What exactly are they inserting into these teachers' contracts? Well, the real scary thing, Peter, is we don't know what they're going to start inserting. What we saw happen that was approved in Boston is $50 million for housing, low-income housing for students and their parents. Again, this is just the start because once it was uncovered, there was an AFL-CIO meeting in New Haven where the New Haven teacher president got up on a labor panel and said, Basically, I'm paraphrasing, this is this is the path forward. We need to meet with the community and put the, essentially get their issues embedded in our contracts to support the collective. So as you know, the labor movement has always advocated for social reforms. I think I think that's fair to say. But this is not just advocating. This is taking it to a new level, meeting with the community and saying, okay, um, and I, when I say community, I mean progressive community, and then saying, okay, well, here's a laundry list of what you want. Let's start trying to put it in the contracts. So let me let me see if I can break this down. We have a teacher's contract that is negotiated by a teacher's union with a municipality that covers wages, hours, working conditions, but included in there is something that really has nothing to do with teachers, but has to do with the students and their parents in that they're funding through this teacher's contract affordable housing? Correct. Okay. And so remember, the teacher's union is negotiating with the executive branch of the mayor's office. And when it comes to a state contract, the teacher's unions are negotiating with the executive branch of the governor's office. So that's and it, the legislators really don't have a lot of input in the process until they get a tentative agreement to vote up or down, which would then become the collective bargaining agreement. So I guess in the case of Boston, we'll move on to L.A. in a minute. But in the case of Boston, it's the teacher's contract that is paid for through taxpayer dollars for education. I assume they've got different buckets, education, fire, police, et cetera, right? The teacher's contract, they're going to have to fund the affordable housing through what? The education budget? Or is it just they're going to come from the general funds? Do we know? It remains to be seen, but it looks to me they're funding it the same way they would fund the salaries for the teachers. So in other words, this is coming out of, I don't know if they're going to put the money into the education budget, how they're going to move the money around, but the money, I don't know how they're going to handle the appropriations, but what I can say is it's a binding contract made in the name of the taxpayers. So once it's in the contract and the legislative branch votes for it, this housing provision isn't going to go through the normal appropriation uh, process that you would normally see. It's going to be put in the labor bucket. It's really strange. It's 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 really an attempt to avoid taking a issue that would get a lot of public scrutiny through the legislative process and moving that into labor negotiations, which are a lot more harder to understand and occur with a lot less public scrutiny. Yeah, I guess the question then gets raised, what happens if they don't allocate the funds over to the education budget for the affordable housing? Does that become a grievance and an arbitrator then 
mandates that the city has to do it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, once once the contract is voted on and once the tentative agreement is voted on and it becomes a collective bargaining agreement, it's a binding contract. So, yes, it would be in full force from an arbitrator, a grievance. And this is just another power grab. And I mean, see, this is this is the issue. The, the left is monolithic in their causes because it's easy to agree with everybody when the answer is always found in somebody else's pocket. So, they have a luxury of not disagreeing with any constituency, and we, you know, we've lately seen how that's getting them in trouble all all across the board. But essentially, they're saying, "Hey, we can't get it through the regular legislative process right now. Let's bury it in a teacher's contract. Get the teacher's contract approved, because you know when we put teachers' contracts before municipal uh, legislative bodies, the conversation is always on the kids. It's not going to be on." affordable housing, it's going to be on the kids' education. So we see the teachers' union where they failed to bring up scores. We see the administrative class in schools going up, even as the the student enrollment seems flat in some areas. Test scores seem to be flat or declining across the board. This is another shiny object to focus on other than educating our kids and actually advocating for teachers so that they could get better wages. And when you were researching this article, did you encounter any opposition to it from the Boston, I guess it'd be a city council that approves it, or the Uh, mayor? Everything that I saw was, it was basically celebrated, and there was really no news other than the union touting that this is the greatest thing. So it just kind of, you know, sometimes when there's no controversy, it just kind of goes under the carpet. So I haven't seen the mass media has not picked this up to say, hey, what's going on here? And this is just going to be the tip of the iceberg. Like I said, the union president in New Haven, where we're talking about Boston, this happened in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. is already saying, meet with the community and see what they want. <laughs> you know, so we can get their support to support our contract. Let's get some of their laundry wish list into our collective bargaining agreements that have nothing to do with labor. I mean, this is going to be a huge problem. How often do we hear people in conservative media or any media talk about, you know, the the fourth branch of government, the administrative state, individuals making regulations, you know, OSHA and what we see the Department of Labor doing with contractors, things of that nature. This is now going to be the next thing. Well, yeah, I mean, if just using using this one issue, I mean, you could see them doing this with any kind of Green New Deal type stuff. You know, all buildings have to have in the teacher's contract, all buildings have to have, you know, solar panels or whatever. Uh, Peter, I only had 600 words in an op-ed for the Daily Caller, but embedded in the Boston contract is Green New Deal, it's uh, oh, of course the <laughs> I so so the, the housing one was the one that was fifty million dollars. It was real tangible, real easy to pick out for a very small article. But if there you do a deep dive in the teachers' contract, they're exactly what you're talking about. They're already starting to do. Interesting. Now the the Los Angeles one is that similar or the same or is it? Are there any differences there? It seems like Los Angeles is starting to incorporate housing justice provisions into their contract. It doesn't seem as 
blatant as Boston, but I'm this is the start. This is just the they're getting their camel's nose in negotiations. Get, to the tent. Get the camel's nose under the tent. This is this is the first step, and you're gonna see this start to spread across the country. That is fascinating. And I guess, well, you know, we talked about it. You you mentioned or used the term monolithic. It's devious. You got to give them credit for that. Oh, it's a pernicious tactic because they're basically saying, okay, hey, how can we get these other organizations to be loud and really come out and support our contract? Not by saying, hey, we're going to do the best job possible to educate our kids, which should be something that could bring everybody together, right? Education, we want everybody educated to the best ability. They moved past that. Now they're just saying, okay, well, what do you want? It's like a quid per quo is what they're trying to set up here. It's very disturbing. Well, and again, going back to the legalities of it, hypothetically, if Boston doesn't fund up this $50 million and they're in breach of contract, the union files a grievance, they either get an arbitrator or a judge to enforce it, the Boston taxpayers are just out the money. Oh, absolutely. Because right? it's, it's only- bound by the city and the teachers union. Correct. It's a, it's a known contract. I always say contracts are like a red hot stove. Yeah. Everybody sees the stove. It's hot. Anybody touches it to break the contract, they get burned. If they leave their hand on longer, they get burned longer. So this is an enforceable contract that's made in the name of the taxpayers without the normal public scrutiny and avoiding and subverting the normal legislative process that we all become accustomed to. You know, I, I don't know if you're following the uh, strike that's taking place in Newton, Massachusetts. And I only bring this up because I don't know if that's, in, you know, that's part of the strike, that issue. However, it's illegal for teachers to strike in Massachusetts. And what that infers to me with the, regard to the Boston contract is there was no pushback from the negotiators of that Boston contract with the teachers. Like, they didn't go out on strike. They didn't push back. Had they pushed back and they went out on strike, you'd see big headlines on that, right? Oh, absolutely. But, see, this also gives – not only is it pernicious on the teachers' union, but it's also on the politicians in the executive branch because now this is going to spread not just through the unions educating their uh, constituents, their members of this is a tactic we could use. I think you're going to see progressive – legislators and the executive branch saying, hey, if there's something that we want that we can't get through the normal committee process, why don't we make a deal with a teacher's union and get it embedded in the teacher's contract? I mean, there's this is really opening up Pandora's box. Yeah. And like I said, it's not going to, it may have gone unnoticed. And I give you a lot of credit for reaching out after you saw the article. Um, I really appreciate it. Not that it'll go unnoticed in the media, but it's not going unnoticed by the unions. Cause like I said, I became aware of it when I saw a video clip of the union president of New Haven at an AFL CIO labor conference where they were on a labor panel saying Boston is the example. Let's do this everywhere. So they're actually training their negotiators across the country on how to do this. How to avoid the legislative process at either the city or state level, I guess, right? In terms of Absolutely. budgeting? That's, that's exactly what it is. It's it's basically 
It's another way instead of doing the the you know you had legislation, then you had people who do regulation to try to get around the legislation, and now you're going to have teachers' contracts. So you're going to add another layer of bureaucracy to this. Well, it so going back to your old profession, I you know what's to stop the firefighters from demanding a certain type of vehicle or something else in their contract unbeknownst to the citizens who are paying for that contract that those vehicles may cost more or you know does this extend to other public sector unions government unions oh i think this extends to to every union out there um in the public sector federal and state is to say okay let's try to get things through our labor agreement that have nothing to do with labor so we can gain support. They're going to look at it as in, if I have an impasse with during negotiations, I reach impasse, we can't agree on something that has to do with wages, hours, and working conditions. But yet I know that the executive branch is looking for this one thing that they couldn't get through to town council or the, or the, the general assembly or whatever the legislative branch is, the union's going to bring it up, you know, hey, why don't we put that in the contract and then make them vote up or down on the entire contract? And if they vote no, we're going to brand them as anti-firefighter, anti-cop, anti-teacher. You know, that's that's the that's the game book. That's the playbook. And that it is you're 100 percent right. This is this is going to grow. And the unions want it to grow exponentially because, like I said, they're already teaching their members. It's deviously smart. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, they get credit for being persistent. Yeah. I mean, and Inventive. they also get they also get credit because they attack on every single front. And conservatives need to realize that you're not just playing in one sandbox. You got to play in eight different sandbox. And people don't realize that how much labor affects everything else they care about. You know, if their thing is property taxes, they they just don't see the connection yet that a lot of expense, when you look at any budget, you know, 70 percent of 70 to 80 percent of any municipal budget is personnel and labor. And people, for some reason, just don't get the connection yet. Right. And we're starting to see the impact of that across the country. We got to start focusing on everything. Well, I mentioned a second ago the. um the Newton strike that's going on up in Massachusetts. And there's a lawsuit filed by the students. This is going on two weeks now, not students, the parents. And, you know, if we're talking about kids, it's not a Democrat Republican issue. It's really like, you know, as I'm assuming in, because it's Massachusetts, like the majority of those parents are probably not conservative Republicans at best. They may be Republicans, but they're probably in the middle somewhere. So in that case, like their kids are being affected by not being in school for these past two weeks. If you kind of combine the issue, like, I don't know what the demographics, political demographics are in Boston city schools districts, right? Like for the whole district. But like, I got to imagine that's going to come down to their bottom line and how much taxes they have to pay in the city of Boston. Are they even aware of it? They're probably not even aware of it. And, you know, this shouldn't be a partisan issue. I don't view it as a partisan issue. It's a good governance issue. I mean, we hear the left say we got to protect democracy, you know, and you hear the right say we got to protect our republic. But the fact of the matter is 
this just comes down to good governance. Education, the fire department, police department, those three things should transcend politics. You know, they they benefit yeah. everybody. But let's not get in the weeds and start burying Marxist and socialist type agenda and trying to just subvert the democratic process. It, it's it's really taking things in the wrong direction and we really need negotiators to recognize it at the table. We need negotiators to be trained to just to understand the tactics, to be able to combat the tactics and to put a stop to it. Right. And it's kind of, I mean, if you were to put it up to the national level, the term that everybody's familiar with is the pork, right? So at the local level in Boston, they just put in a whole bunch of pork that isn't really to benefit the kids. I guess in theory, it's the low-income kids and their parents, but it's a $50 million piece of pork that they just shoved into the contract in the dark of night. Correct. And um, we see that a lot. Of, I think they call it Washington Monument Syndrome when we talk about the federal budget, where when they talk about a shutdown, they try to invoke that visceral response of, they're going to close the Washington Monument. How could we do that? Um, to take it on a smaller level. I just wrote a piece in the National Review about the tactics superintendents use. If you look at when a superintendent puts forth their budget, my father used to call it cutting football. If the superintendent wants to get a budget passed, what do you do? You cut football. And I go, what do right. you mean? Goes, that makes sense. If you're cutting football or you're saying that the parents got to pay for the kids to play sports um, we just saw it in Greenwich, Connecticut. The superintendent proposed cutting foreign language in one of the most affluent communities in the in the country. Hmm. What that does is everybody goes to the meeting. The parents go to the meeting. One board of education member in Greenwich said they got over 560 emails, and a lot of it had to do with them cutting the foreign language program. So everybody focuses on the shiny object. Meanwhile, School enrollment's been flat or declining since the 80s, and test scores are flat, and they keep adding more and more administrators without being able to demonstrate that these more administrators are actually having an impact on education. But nobody looks at that part of the budget because they're so focused on, we need to save foreign language or we need to save football. So we need our board of education members. We, you know, they gotta be able to ask the right questions and one of the things that has been such a disservice to for good governance in, in this country has been, in, have you ever heard the, the advice, don't ask a question unless you know the answer to it? Oh, sure. I think that's okay. labor law 101 or, or just law 101. It's law 101, but the problem is the generic public and elected officials kind of took on that mantra, but you have to realize where that advice actually comes from. That advice means that you don't ask somebody a question in a jury trial or a tri at trial that you didn't ask the question in depositions. So the lawyer already had six to 12 hours of asking the person questions. They forgot to ask that one question. You don't ask the question in trial because you don't know what the answer is going to be. We have board of education members who took that advice, meaning, oh, well, if I don't know the answer, I can't ask the question. No, you don't have the ability to take a deposition. You have to ask all the questions you don't know the answers or you're never going to find out the right information. Yeah, and well, I can go on for hours about bad government. So I, I just, 
I posted something earlier. Government's motto should be do no harm, but that does not seem to be the case. I, I, agree, I agree. We want good governance and we want citizens informed. And again, this, this isn't a partisan issue. Um, people need to wake up and see what's going on because this is going to continue. Well, and you kind of touched on this talking about the Greenwich issue. Like people are not taking their kids to public schools anymore, which opens up another Pandora's box. And Absolutely. I, I had a, a teacher who also, and he's a private school teacher in Manhattan on the podcast last year. And he was saying, and we're talking more about the things that are being pushed in public schools, said they're being pushed just as far or just as far left in the private schools where people are escaping the public schools, thinking they're going to a safer place. And that's not the case, which I found fascinating. You're well, you got to where are your teachers coming from? They're coming from universities and colleges where they're indoctrinated with the same philosophy. That was part of it. Private school or a public school, that's got to have some impact on it. You know, the other thing he said that was interesting is because a lot of the students that he was teaching, and these were elite private schools in New York, those parents viewed the private schools as a gateway to places like Harvard, Yale, et cetera. And Harvard, Yale, and all the Ivy Leagues are pushing this stuff. So then the high schools push it, and then it just kind of trickles down to the private schools at the lower levels, lower age levels. I found yes, that fascinating. It's been a a long march through the institutions. Yeah. And it hasn't just been higher education. I Yes, I think that is a problem um, throughout, is that a lot of public schools and private schools are very similar. And we just want them to educate the kids. I want kids to be able to read, do math, understand. Right. <laughs> read, write. That's, that's what I want. I has no agenda. Reading, writing, and arithmetic, and maybe balancing a checkbook. Absolutely. You know, you, you see the same thing with the DEI um, being put into contracts now and things of that issue. It's not about being anti-history or um, in 1992, I had to take a class when I lived in a firehouse in Montgomery County, Maryland, when I started going to college. And they had a class on EEO and the law and cultural diversity. And it was a great program. And mm -hmm. it really focused on shared purpose. And it focused on understanding discrimination law and equal opportunity employment. It's, that's not what right. it is. And so if you're against DEI because you're against equal outcomes and you want equal opportunity, they try to put you in a box that you're some racist. No, history should be taught warts and all. People should understand the 14th Amendment and the Civil Rights Act and all of the laws that this country has. But DEI is not the diversity training in the EEO law uh, training from the early 90s. And it's been perverted. And that's one of the problems that we see. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, and there's an agenda behind it. The, um, yeah, that take me off on a different rift. So let me ask you, what else are you working on? Uh, right now, we're trying to protect Connecticut's fiscal guardrails. So, uh, is that possible in Connecticut? Yeah. See, here, here's the thing. This is going to blow your mind. Okay. So, in Connecticut, in the '70s, they passed a law that said that the state had to fund, fully fund, the pensions. 
Mm. Every union leader would die for that. I have never seen a municipal union leader not advocate for proper funding of their retirement benefits. I mean, it's like almost like 100%. They, the unions try to do a good job on that, and it's, and it's the politicians that create the problems in that area. However, it's different in Connecticut because Connecticut has a law of supersedence. A union contract can supersede law. So even though the state unions had their contracts fully funded by law, they actually agreed and signed off on the politicians not funding the pensions, which didn't kick a can down the road deferring a hard decision. What it did was it created an avalanche that crowded out everything else. So the pension debt got to crushing levels in Connecticut because the unions actually signed off on it was part of the problem. I mean, this is just unbelievable. And in 2017, in a bipartisan way, the Democrats and Republicans got together and they put in these fiscal guardrails to bring to fund the pensions, a bond cap, a volatility cap, a whole bunch of different mechanisms. There's about five of them to put budget constraints in, and it's worked. Connecticut is slowly getting out of the hole. It's slow. They're actually paying down their pension debt. Private equity and private business is looking at Connecticut and saying, yes, they're serious about taking care of their debt. And now that we finally got surpluses instead of deficits, now the unions are putting policy pressure on the governor and the legislature to get rid of the guardrails and go back to the way things were. So right now, Yankee Institute's been focusing on Connecticut's pension debt. I just pulled up an article as you're talking from the Yankee Institute from 2021 that said Connecticut only had 23.8% of the funds necessary to meet its 111.2 billion in under unfunded pension liabilities. Yeah, and it was and a, it's, and it's the had, worst in the country. And while we've had 40 years of a democratic controlled legislature, um, this problem was not just the Democrats. Republican governors also uh, made compacts or deals with the union to not pay uh, the pensions. So it, it's a bipart it's a bipartisan uh, problem that they fixed. They actually got a solution in a bipartisan way that's been working since 2017. And last year, I think 2023, the legislature unanimously. When does a legislator do anything unanimous? They just don't. Unanimously voted to extend the guardrails. And now the state unions are attacking those very guardrails. And the municipal unions haven't woken up to say, wait a second here. This impacts us as well with our budgets. The, the state debt impacts everybody because when it's so big like it is in Connecticut and I think like Illinois and other places in the country, that debt crushes out everything else you care about. So if you care about tax cuts, you care about social programs, education, that debt gets so large, it crowds out everything else. It's not kicking the can. Language matters. It's not. They didn't kick the can down the road. They created an avalanche that just keeps growing exponentially. And now they're starting to put some controls on it and the unions want to get rid of it. Well, to use the number that's cited in that Yankee Institute article, $111 billion just in Connecticut in unfunded pension liabilities, that is about the amount of money that the United States has given Ukraine. Like, that's a big nut. 
And that note, if you look at the number today, it's it's down substantially, still huge, but it's down substantially okay. from that because they've been making, because of this 2017 bipartisan deal, they've been putting these fiscal guardrails, and now the union wants to drive Connecticut off the cliff again. It makes no sense hmm. because the, the union is going to succeed when Connecticut succeeds. The, the answer is economic growth, not, the answer isn't found in everybody else's pocket. And that's the problem that they need to learn. You know, I'll tell you, since starting laborunionnews.com and and I just looked this morning, we've posted over 31,000 article links in the last two years. And the podcasts that we've been doing for the last two years, I feel like we're sitting on a hill outside of Rome watching Rome burn. Just all the avalanche, as you mentioned, of things that are coming down the pike. There's no such thing as a free lunch, and eventually the bill comes due. Right. Yep. Well, Frank Ricci, thank you for coming back on Labor Relations Radio. I appreciate the insight, rather depressing though it may be. (laughs) But as always, it's good to talk to you, my friend. Good to be on your show. Listen to it all the time. It's an honor to be on your show, Peter. Reach out anytime. Thank you so much for all you do. Thanks. So that was Frank Ricci from the Yankee Institute talking about a rather pernicious, if that's the right word, tactic that unions, at least in Boston and perhaps L.A., are using to get taxpayers to fund social activist issues. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. As always, I'm going to include some links under the audio portion of this episode. If you'd like to reach out, reach out on X, the app formerly known as Twitter, at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great week. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.